I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 60 of the Talking Golf History Podcast. Friends, historians, listeners, I take great pride in writing my intros for this show. But to be honest, when our subject is the greatest long-form golf writer of all time, How can anyone write something worthy of the great Herbert Warren Wind? Any attempt to write something brilliant would fail miserably. How does one write a short intro for a man who took a thousand words just to clear his throat? Today on our show, we welcome back two of my favorite authors and historians, Bradley Klein, who joined us to share the history of Donald Ross, and Stephen Proctor, who joined us to share the history of young Tom Morris. The podcast you're about to listen to is fantastic. Two accomplished writers marveling at the wonder of Herbert Warren Wind. Before we start today's show, I'd like to give a special thanks to the Golfer's Journal. Bradley's Klein 3,000-word tribute to Herbert Warren Wind kicked off our conversation that brought us down this road, and by the end of the podcast, you may find that it will lead us down another. I am a subscriber of the Golfer's Journal, and would recommend it to anyone who loves the game of golf. Folks, you're in for a real treat. If you can get past my delivery, and forgive me, I was a little bit under the weather for our recording, you have yourself an instant classic. Without further ado, Bradley Klein and Stephen Proctor present the wonderful Herbert Warren Wind. Gentlemen, welcome back to Talking Golf History. It's nice to be here, Connor, especially with Bradley, whose work I've admired for so many years. Uh, pleasure. It's always fun to uh, talk and um, indulge in the winter here when you can't, play, we can't play golf. So. That's right. Uh, we got Stephen down here in Florida, so we're a little blessed. In certain ways. Yeah, that's right. Cursed in others. Um, our subject today is Herbert Warren Wynn, a man so respected for his golf writing that in the USGA in 1987 established the Herbert Warren Wynn Award an award acknowledging and encouraging outstanding research, writing, and publishing about the game of golf. It is the highest literary honor awarded by the USGA, and I believe Stephen was nominated this last year for one, and Bradley won one in 2001. Bradley, can you express what that award means to you as a writer? Well, it meant a lot, um, because generally golf writing is appreciated among a small coterie of those who play the game. You know, we're all in sort of niches in the golf industry. There's a lot of emphasis on the tour and on the swing. Architecture is one small niche, and uh, serious golf writing, while it's got a great tradition, is only appreciated by a small group. As an academic, by training and having spent three years in libraries and archives and golf courses all over the North uh, Atlantic region, 
I knew what I put into that book, the Ross biography, discovering Donald Ross, and it was a tremendous sense of um, respect that I got from that award. And it, the fact, when I got it, it was a small presentation ceremony. Now it's part of the official meeting, which is great because they really play it up and they have a, a ceremony where they do a 15-minute interview with the author. So to their credit, the USGA has taken that tradition very seriously. And I, I, um, I, I'm grateful for that, grateful for the name of uh, Herb Wind as uh, someone who has uh, meant so much. And he meant a lot to me personally because I knew him, spent a lot of time with him had a great regard for him. I also saw his limitations and I tried to convey that in a long piece I wrote for the, for golfers journal last year. So, um, you know, one of the things you learn as a writer is to see different sides of things simultaneously and not to be, not to fall in in line with one particular, um, point of view. And, um, it takes longer writing to do that. Sometimes it's not that easy on Twitter where everything gets condensed and you're sort of forced into a corner. So, um, the tradition of golf writing really gives people a chance, I think, to explore complexity, ambivalence, uh, excitement, and um, also just beauty. So it's, it's, a, it's a great feeling to be part of that tradition. That's fantastic. Before we get into his writing, Bradley and, and Stephen, wh- what do we know about his early years prior to taking up journalism? Do we know much? Um. I found a lot of material on Herb Wynn's uh, early life, if you will. Uh, there are seven boxes of his papers crammed into uh, an archive at Yale University. Um, and I spent, I'd, I'd gone through that about 15 years ago uh, for a first run and then went back again um, about a year, just over a year ago, before the shutdown of COVID. It's harder now to sit in the library go through material with dusty boxes and um, there was a tremendous amount of material there Arc, he had a, he had very detailed diaries he was born in um, 1916 and um, to a very wealthy family in uh, Brockton Massachusetts and he wrote a lot uh, starting in high school and um, he kept everything he also had a clipping service later on once he broke through with the uh, famous story of American golf. He hired a clipping service. So you had all of his reviews from the from 1946 and 47 on. But earlier, he kept programs, uh, jazz record. Con- uh, he, w- he would document, he, w- he would write r- brief reviews or synopses of every film he saw. He'd go to a concert, he'd write it down. So we ha- I had his diaries, and, uh, and uh, that was very helpful, reconstructing. And I also uh, had spent some time with his uh, sisters, uh, who have subsequently passed. But I, uh, ten years ago, I spent time with them, so I got a very good sense of the the complexity of his upbringing, the bitterness he felt toward his overbearing father, the demands uh, and expectations of him in the business world that he never fulfilled, their disappointment that he never married, and um, the frustrations that mounted to the point where I. One of the revelations in the article I wrote that I found out from his early bitterness and um, uh, angst, if you will, was that uh, he was subject to serious depression, was hospitalized repeatedly in the 60s, 70s, and uh, even in the 80s. And um, I knew that he had a kind of secret life, and um, it came out because um, the upbringing he had was very harsh and uh, very demanding and unfulfilling because he was himself 
constantly trying to establish himself in the arts. I mean, one of the things I found were all these drafts for proposals for radio shows and um, uh, game shows on the radio and manuscripts. He wrote half of a manuscript about a novel in South America that was a travelogue in effect, but it was trumped, if you will, by John Gunther's uh, Inside South America, which came out in 1940, so it made his book impossible. So he had to put that aside. And then he went to New York and ushered at the NBC, at the Radio City Music Hall while trying to get established. So he worked really, really hard and didn't break through till after World War II. So it wasn't until the age of 30, really, that he became established as a writer. I think until that time, he was supported by his family. But, you know, he went to uh, Yale University, played basketball for the freshman team, was a very good golfer, then went to uh, England to get a master's degree at Cambridge University in 1936, met her, met uh, Charles, uh, met Bernard Darwin then. So from the standpoint of training and equipment and uh, understanding of the arts and golf and sports, he was incredibly well positioned, but never got a breakthrough until he uh, came back from World War II, which he served in Asia, non-combat role. That's when he established himself. Yeah. Took a while. I understand he was a fine golfer himself. What do, do we know anything about his golf game? Oh, yeah, sure. He played in the uh, 1950 British Amateur, made it to the second round, got through qualifying, made it to the second round. He was a very low handicapped player. Um, I don't know of how much competition he played other than that one British Amateur. I found someone who knew his golf game. I found the the old pro at Sands Point Golf Club, a prominent club on the North Shore of Long Island. Herb joined in 1952 or so. And this fellow who was a young caddy at the time, caddy for Herb, went on to become the the club pro there for 30 years, described Herb as a fussy golfer. He'd sit there for for hours pouring over a few shots uh, uh, that he'd hit and inspect getting Get, looking carefully at the swing pattern and the divot pattern and played a lot of golf by himself. It wasn't all that sociable, but we know he was a very fine golfer. Yeah. Ah, that's interesting. You mentioned his relationship with Darwin at Cambridge. Do we know anything about that relationship? I mean, was there a true bond between men? I mean, obviously he hadn't established himself as a golf writer as of yet. Do we know anything about that relationship and did it continue? Uh, we only know it from Herb Wynn's side, although there were a few letters and cards from Bernard Darwin in the Herb Wynn file. So Darwin kept up with I, I think Darwin died in 1955 uh, and was not in good shape the last few years after the war. But there were some um, cards and postcards and so on. Um, actually, Darwin, I think, lived, lived a little later, till 61 maybe, but he was not in good shape. Uh, but there is some recognition and mutuality in, the, in, in, in that correspondence. What we do know is that uh, Herwin met Bernard Darwin at the president's putter at uh, Rye Golf Club, which was that wacky winter event between the uh, former varsity golfers at Cambridge and Oxford. And this would have been in 1938. And Darwin was uh, laid up in the clubhouse and so used Herb Wind as a scout for uh, reports on the various matches that were going on. So that was the first time that they had uh, interacted in any serious way. And that's that's according to, to Herb Wind's account anyway, which, which I, I, I would think is accurate. Um, so, but they would not have met. I mean, after 
38, her win didn't get didn't go back to Britain until uh, 1950. So there was a big gap there. Certainly not there during the war. Couldn't afford to go after. It wasn't until the uh, British Amateur of 1950 that they uh, revived their direct contact. But there would have been a correspondence. And Herb kept up a very active correspondence with a number of other writers. I remember he was writing a piece about a golf course. It might have been Formby. I forget which one it was. Um, and he sends Herb. I think it's uh, was it Herbert Crowley? Was that the writer? Um, he sends Crowley a questionnaire about a golf course that he had that Herb had seen, but wanted to confirm. And there are 110 questions in there about. The, the the heather patch on the fourth hole or the size of the ninth green and all that. And Crowley responded to every one of those questions. So he certainly had good contact with the British writers. Uh, but um, Darwin would have been, you know, by the 50s was uh, ill and um, not very um, mobile. So very limited contact. Stephen, Herbert Warren Wynn's known pretty well as starting his career off with the New Yorker. Can you give us a little bit of a, a detail on his start with the New Yorker in, I believe, 1941? You know, the uh, the interesting thing I think about Herb Wynn at the New Yorker is that when he's reaching his prime there around the early 60s, you know, he was when he was writing a lot about the Masters and when he was writing, uh, covering all the major events, and he wrote a wonderful piece about the president's putter, uh, he was really coming along and doing long-form storytelling at a time when that was really starting to enjoy a resurgence or a, a flowering in journalism, uh, you know, at New York Magazine, at Esquire, at places like that. So I think of him as very different than Bernard Darwin in the sense that he's really more in the long-form tradition of writing. Uh, and so I, I just think of him as a completely different species than Bernard. Bernard is an essayist. And, and, and Herb Wind is really a long-form storytelling writer. And so the thing I notice most about his career is that he's really doing that for golf journalism at a time when, you know, mainstream journalism is really starting to appreciate the kind of truth that long-form storytelling can give you that you're not going to get from a thousand-word piece. So that's what I think of mostly when I think of Wynn the writer at The New Yorker. Was he the first... Long form writer in golf. I don't know the answer. I'm not to that. aware of others. You know, I think almost all the ones I've read, and Bradley, I don't know if you're if you have different experience, but you know, almost every writer that I know of in, is is more of a short form essayist or you know straight up covering the event type journalist. I don't know of another golf writer who who wrote ten and fifteen and twenty thousand pieces, except maybe John McPhee. John McPhee occasionally took on golf. He wrote a thing called Links Land and Bottle. That appeared, uh, I think, in the New Yorker also. But I'm not aware of others. Bradley, are you? Well, I'm, um, just, let, let's just talk about how long form we're going here. Um, so a weekly dispatch by Bernard Darwin in, in a British newspaper might have been 800, 1,200 words. Uh, your standard column or report in the Golf Digest would have been 1,400, 1,800 words. Her win, his piece on... Robert Trent Jones in 1951 was 10,000 words. <laughs> um, the piece I wrote, by comparison, the piece I published in the, in the Golfer's Journal, my words are 3,800 words. That's the longest. I've written 2,000 articles, and that's the longest 
I, I, I think I've written 2,000 articles. I don't know, something like that. That's by far the longest piece I've ever published in golf, in a golf publication. So uh, his dispatches, you know, the Masters in April, he wouldn't come out to, for his piece till the week before the U.S. Open. And it was 12,000, 14,000 words. His paragraphs are longer than most people's golf essays these days. And actually, from a formal writing standpoint, he's kind of disorganized. He's all over the place. A classic burying the lead, his account of the 1979 U.S. Open that Hal Irwin wrote. You'd have to go through about two-thirds of the story to find a sentence in the middle of a paragraph that Irwin actually won. You know, it's interesting, Bradley, because, you know, when he wrote those pieces, as you say, they would come out in June, usually, uh, right before the Open. And so almost none of those pieces are about the event itself. Right. They are about something else about golf. And they one of the things that I find delightful about Herbert Warren Wynn is that he wanders off. Yeah. He, and I think the most interesting parts of his pieces often are where he wanders down a byway for the very simple reason that it seems to interest him. Uh, something arcane about the game that he finds amusing or fascinating and he'll go on for ages and ages about that and then eventually bring you back to the topic but that's where I learn the most from Wynn's pieces and get the most enjoyment out of them you know classical example of that is maybe my favorite Herbert Warren Wynn pieces North to the Links of Doorknock of course and uh, the opening paragraph of that which as Bradley says is probably the opening paragraph has to be close to 600 words if not longer might be 700 or 800. I had it in front of me, Stephen, last night. It is five pages and like 1,500 words before Dornick is mentioned. Right. <laughs> it is like, I, I, I likened it to, how did I write this down? I said, it's a 1,000 words before you mention Dornick, and yet it's the history of golf wrapped in a game in Scotland, personalized and gift-wrapped before your eyes. It's amazing because he starts with the, basically the introduction of the gutty balls, how that piece starts. Yeah. And that, that revolutionized the game and uh, so forth and so on. And that's just so typical of him. Um, you know, in 1972, he writes just in what I think of as one of his other great pieces for the New Yorker called Robert Tyre Jones Jr., which is about uh, the first Masters that was conducted without Bobby Jones alive. And, you know, it's really just the life story of Bobby Jones and his import to the game of golf and the... Uh, significance of his creation at Augusta National from the standpoint of a golf course, and in particular an inland golf course. But like I say, you know, there's probably of the, I don't know how many words are in that piece, but it's got to be easy, eight or 9,000, don't you think, Bradley? And uh, oh, sure, I'd yeah. say of those, maybe 2,000 are about the outcome of the 1972 Masters, if that many. And that's how his pieces typically are. But I think that's the beauty of his work is that he had such an unbelievable knowledge and passion and interest in the whole broad history of the game across disciplines. And uh, almost all of that comes out in these wonderful essays at one time or another. And so he's to read wind is to, to get a great education in the history of the game. Yeah. And uh, I, I feel like that's his major contribution is to show us all as readers, the really incredible breadth and depth of this wonderful game and all the little alleyways and byways, and as we like to call them on Twitter, rabbit holes, a person can descend down and maybe not return to the regular life for a couple thousand words. But you know what's great about his approach? He was essentially a frustrated novelist, and he had a brilliant capacity to caricature, uh, to uh, characterize people. So he was perfectly com comfortable with amateur golfers from the 20s. Um, and uh, he brought them to life as if you knew them. And 
you know, he, he loved um, Charles Dickens. That was his favorite uh, novelist. And you can see that in his ability to bring up. And he would create the character of the player through a description of their swing. So the, the level of knowledge that requires for players who you probably have never seen, uh, whether it's Joyce Weatherhead, for example, um, to do that is a remarkable skill. And um, he had the patience to, to do that and even pour through photographs and film and uh, old newsreels just to get a feel for that and to convey that in a way that brought people to life. And I think more than any other writer, he brought the players to life. Um, he could do that with architecture, as he did in that wonderful piece, North to the Links. And, and what's interesting is that piece, as you know, Stephen, that piece made Royal Dornick as a golf club. Until that, yes, it did. And honestly, I got to tell you a little story is that, you know, okay, so I'm at a point in my career in journalism where I'm realizing that the game is not going to get more fun as I get older. And I make a decision that, you know, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do something different by the time I'm 55 because this is already not fun. And uh, so I'm thinking more about golf history and starting to read golf history. And I, I decide, well, you, you got to go over to St. Andrews. And the first thing that happens is I read North to the Links of Doorknock. And I'm like, all right, now I have my plan. So I, uh, my first trip to St. Andrews was guided completely by that article. And uh, a friend of mine in journalism and I got uh, our tea time at St. Andrews through the lottery. And then we went from there north to the links of Doorknock, all the way along the coast, playing all the classic old course. We only wanted to pay coastal seaside courses that were more than 100 in years old. That was our rule. If it wasn't at least 100 years old, we had no interest in it. And uh, it was just the greatest journey of a lifetime. And Doorknock itself as a destination, and even better than that, Brewer to the north of it was just, you know, trip of a lifetime type thing. So that that particular piece, you know, inspired me to do my first trip to St. Andrews and to Scotland. I, I tell you a personal story that we heard on uh, the Society page from Charlie Yates, and he talked about his uh, father's affinity for Herbert Warren Wind. And he said that that article, the North the Links of Dornick, inspired his father because of the description of Kenny Cameron in Nairn. And yeah. to this very day, the Yates family have a very close connection to Nairn from that article. I mean, the beauty of those words inspired the British amateur champion Charlie Yates to travel there to Nairn. They fell in love and they still return. It's unbelievable. Those words, you know, those passionate words personally affected a family who still visits that area because of the written word. It's unbelievable to me. The parallels are amazing. I went over to uh, Scotland for the first time in 1975. I was 21 years old. I had a backpack and a red golf bag with a vinyl cover. Took the train, went to Glen Eagles, worked my way up the coast, and then went to Dornick in 1975. In those days, you had to uh, take the train north and then take the bus down from Bonner Bridge. And um, I played it for the first time in 75, and I joined the club in 1987. I've been a member ever since. And they've, um, and there are a thousand people who have done the same thing. So just financially, the club, unlike Brewer and Goldsby, has benefited from, that, from the legacy of that one article. It's one amazing. Article. It is. It's insane. How, how do we know? Did, his writing must have evolved. I mean, you don't start with a New Yorker and they give you 12,000 words. How did that evolve? Well, I can tell you this, just uh, he was um, writing small pieces and reviews all the time. And then he got, once he came back from Cambridge, with a, he wanted to teach at, a, at a private boarding schools, but because he was Jewish, he couldn't get a job. 
So he stayed at home and, and landed a, a weekly column with the Brockton newspaper and started writing 500, well, it's probably about 1,000 words every week. And they were on the arts, culture, sports, everything, all over the place. And those are fun to read. So he kind of worked his way doing that, I think, for the practice more than the money. Then he started writing these um, drafts of novels and manuscripts that he couldn't get published. But by after the World War Two, he sat down and spent two years in a library researching the story of American golf, but was already getting stories published in magazines like Collier's. Uh, for example, there was a doctor's magazine he wrote for. So he was writing 1,500, 2,500, 3,000 word pieces by then. And then the book. So, you know, he was basically waiting for someone to take him up at the, the level that he was ready. And what's interesting is he established himself with a few, not a lot, with a few long-form essays, obviously the, the Trent Jones piece, but he got very uh, uh, tempted by Sports Illustrated, and he was one of the first, he was on the initial uh, inaugural staff of Sports Illustrated in 1954 when it came out, and he chafed the whole time under their restrictions because he had to meet a deadline. It's he funny. He had word limits there, which he didn't like, and... Uh, you know, it's interesting, like, even before that magazine came out, he was obviously on the foundational crew because the test issue uh, that they have has a great piece by him that I don't think ever actually got published in a magazine besides that sample issue about Billy Joe Patton and the Masters uh, that he made, the you know, the huge splash in uh, in what was it, 1954 or 53? I can't remember which one. Uh, but but uh, <clears throat> but so he was, uh, you know, I think he just one of the reasons he went back to the New Yorkers, he could write longer. And uh, eventually the Sports Illustrated just wouldn't let him do the kinds of pieces that he really wanted to do, uh, which is the really long form pieces. That's my read of it. But you, you know more about his actual life than I do. I just read a lot of his work. As an editor, Stephen, uh, I, I imagine you'd be cutting those words down too? Not, not a few of them. <laughs> you know, I think one of the smart things, that an editor needs to be smart enough to realize when something doesn't require to be touched. Yeah. You know, that's probably the hardest thing to do as an editor is not to touch something because you feel like, well, I'm the editor. Shouldn't, shouldn't I do something? And but, you know, there is such a thing as brilliance. And hopefully if you're an editor, you're smart enough to recognize that when you see it and leave it be. Don't paint over a Picasso. I was hope I would be smart enough to leave him alone. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he might have wanted a bit of restraint. But I mean, I think you would want to let him uh, let him have his wings and go. That that'd be my read of it. Sports Illustrated always had a reputation for being very, very heavily edited, uh, more so than any other magazine. Um, well, you can tell because a lot of the stories sound the same in that magazine, as if they were written through by a rewrite desk in a certain way, with a, a perform, you know, a, a prescribed style. Whereas the New Yorker itself is so much more individualistic, and uh, for my mind, it's just as a journalist and retired journalist, I think the New Yorker is and always has been probably the best journalism done in the United States since. Uh, uh, at least to my to my way of thinking. Yeah, that's a fair assessment. Um, th- and I think they cut him slack more than any other. You know, back in the fift- late 50s, one of my favorite pieces was, and I counted all these words because it was part of the story, he, he spends three days hanging out with Yogi Berra, going to bowling alleys and baseball games. It's it, it, In one, it's 8,800 words in Sports Illustrated. That's, that's the entire center of the magazine now. That's 10 stories. And couldn't and he, what he wanted to convey there, you could not convey in a thousand words. You got to you be. You were mentioned earlier, Bradley, how he he does such a wonderful job of bringing people to life. Yeah. And you know you can't do that as well 
in 850 words as you can in 8,500 words. It's just you need to have detail. You need to have scenes. You need to make the reader see, you know, what instead of uh, telling them something. And you need words to make people see. And, and by the way, those essays from Sports Illustrated days, they're contained in the wonderful collection called The Gilded Age of Sports. And that's where you've got 10,000 words on Bob Cousy, another 10,000 on Maurice Richard, um, profiles of uh, the Yogi Berra pieces in there as well. It's a fantastic collection. And I think it's almost all from that late 50s period in, um, of, at SI. Do we know if Wind was ever assigned projects you might expect from a weekly sports writer, or did he just take on what he found interesting? Um, well, he certainly was assigned the Hogan book. I don't know, Stephen, I don't know if you know the story of that uh, famous five-part Modern Fundamentals of Golf piece, the instructional piece. I, I do know that he was the ghostwriter for it, but I don't know exactly how it came to pass, and I'll be interested to learn. Well, I mean, that was an assignment. That was an assigned piece, and he spent a lot of time and detailed the uh, the swing, and it was a five-part series that became the still the best-selling instruction book in the history of golf. Um, one of the what's interesting biographically is he got very frustrated because it was selling millions of copies, and he never saw a penny of royalties because SI said, "Hey, we paid you once to write it. Why do we need to pay you again?" It's one of the reasons he left SI to go to the New Yorker in um, '63. He's got his hand in a lot of the great history books, beside just. Uh the things he wrote himself. He he ghost wrote Gene Saracen's great book, you know, 30 Years of Champions Golf. He, he ghost wrote Jack Nicholas's book. Uh, so he, he besides the the uh, Van Hogan book, he, he's been involved in many of the great projects. And I would say, Connor, you know, you might make an argument. I'll be interested to see what Bradley thinks about this, that in certain ways, his contributions to the larger history of golf uh, and preserving the larger history of golf are equal to or maybe even surpass what he did himself as a writer. But he certainly made mammoth contributions to the larger history of the game and making sure that that was preserved for modern ages. Stephen, did you ever read his tennis writings? I have not read anything of his about tennis. Uh, I, I tend to be very, you know, I just, for work reasons, I'm reading as much golf as I can, and I, don't, I haven't wandered too much into tennis with him. He was very respected in tennis circles. Uh, the one book that he collected uh, of his essays, Game, Set, and Match, I think it's called. And um, I, tr I understood that he actually won uh, the, uh, an annual uh, a big writing award, a career achievement writing award for, 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 the, uh, for tennis. I've been trying to track that down. It's been very hard. They're not responsive but because um, there's, there's an annual award that, that they give. He wrote very detailed pieces on, on hockey. That was actually the sport he loved to write about uh, when he was younger. Um, and his pieces on his baseball pieces are very perceptive. He understood the game and the strategy. Uh, he could have succeeded writing about any sport, uh, but golf became the niche that he kind of um, kept moving forward on. And I, I think your point is right about the making and preserving history. If you think about the impact of his pieces on on Trent Jones, on Dornick, on Bobby Jones. And those two books, are, the Sarazen book in particular, is wonderfully detailed about his uh, early youth and growing up and all. So it was a great stylist and detail. Um, and it's easy to underestimate the work that goes into that kind of output. Um, very meticulous. Very. Um, he, wants, um, he used to have two phrases. I would 
he once said it took him a thousand words to clear his throat. And I would call him sometimes at his office and he would say, oh, he was just spending the day polishing a sentence or two. Polishing a sentence or two. I love that. Yeah. I was wondering, maybe you guys, if you could uh, pontificate, if you will, what's, uh, which are your favorite golf books that he wrote? Well, I'll start there. I think, you know, if you want to read Herbert Warren Wynn, the essayist, I don't think you can do better than uh, following through, which has a lot of the pieces that we've mentioned here, the piece about the president's putter, the piece about Bobby Jones, and so forth and so on. But I, you know, I like some of the things that he did that are collections of other writing beyond his own, and I think those are significant. For instance, uh, we should talk a little bit later probably about the classics of golf library, because I think yeah, that's that actually is, what I was leading into with this question. Absolutely. Um, but one of the books that's in that library is a collection of writing about golf that he put together called The Complete Golfer. And it has pieces from everything. So if you were to read that book as a neophyte to the learning about golf history, as as I did when, when I first bought that, uh, you get a sampling of all kinds of great writing across the time, uh, across history. Uh, from biographies and memoirs to you know excerpts from Francis Wee Metz memoirs, writing by Grantland Rice, writing by all these fabulous people from all these books. And it's just an unbelievable education, literally starting with The Links of Lease by Toma- Tobias Smollett, writing excerpts from P.G. Wodehouse, Ring Lardner, all these amazing writers, and uh, Walter Hagen, just everything. From And it's the thing that's interesting about it, too, is I think, Wynn teaches us that to understand golf, you have to understand the game in a lot of dimensions, both architecture and instruction and the history of the playing of the game and the history of the writing of the game. And that's the broad view that he took of life and of golf itself and that is reflected in so many of his long essays. So those kinds of things stand out to me, but following through is my favorite of his collections overall. Um, I'd have to agree with that on the golf side. I, I, I will say on the classics of golf, he uh, talk about contributing to preserving the history. Yes. The publisher of that series, uh, Bob McDonald, told me. Uh, Bob McDonald was a very successful TV ad producer guy and um, took to golf and then became friends with Herb uh, Wynn in the uh, mid-'80s and persuaded Herb when he was leaving the New Yorker to take on the general editorship of this new series where they were uh, going to republish books that had fallen out of print. And that series literally revived the history of golf writing. So books like Arnold Haltain's The Mystery of Golf, for example, had completely disappeared. And it ended up with 37 of these introductions. They're actually c- compiled in a separate book, that Classics of Golf, right. and called An Introduction to the Literature of Golf. But her preserved you know instructional book looks by by percy boomer for example uh the robert hunter book um on the, the links mcdonald's uh, memoirs um scotland's Gap, yeah uh, and wodehouse and darwin's books uh, collections of essays you know between the wars golf between the wars was one of the fabulous accounts of interwar amateur golf so herb wins uh working with Bob McDonald, and that was a very risky um, book club kind of uh, enterprise, and it was fairly successful for a while. 
that single-handedly revived the fate of about 40 great golf books. And I think generally it reintroduced a modern audience to the classic tradition of the writing. You don't have that movement in baseball, for example, or football or basketball. Uh, you have some fine books, but you don't have a history and a kind of reflection back and a reappropriation of the tradition that you have in golf. And Herb Wynn did that, and nobody else could have. You know, Connor, I want to tell you a little bit about that. The, uh, you know, as I was saying earlier, when I got to be about 50, I realized that, you know, journalism was, you know, going the way of the horse and buggy and that I needed to try to think of something else. So I decided that I would do golf history. And my approach to a thing like that is I need to, I usually try to start by identifying and reading the seminal works of an area that I want to know something about, or I want to feel knowledgeable enough to write something about. And so I started to figure out, well, how can I find out what are the seminal works of golf? And then it dawned on me when I first saw this advertisement that Herbert Warren Wind had already done that job for me. And so that's how I started. I subscribed to the Classics Golf Library. And I got all 69 of the volumes and read all 69 of the volumes. And I haven't ever stopped reading. But it, what I've done is just continue down every one of the individual rabbit holes that Herbert Warren Wynn sets up in the Classics of Golf. I've probably read 30 more architecture books. I've probably read 15 or 20 more uh, books about instruction. I've probably read 30 or 40 other literature books by people who were in the Classics of Golf library, but only one of their volumes was. And then I find the other three or four they did. So it's been something that set me on the path of learning enough about golf history to hopefully uh, write something meaningful about, uh, about it. Uh, and that was how I started on the path to doing the Tommy book. I didn't have the idea that I would do Tommy at that time. I, I kind of picked that up when I followed on the north to the links of Doorknock Trail and was so impressed by his, his tombstone in St. Andrews that I thought, you know, there's a great story. Maybe I'll work on that one. And uh, so it was Wind who set me off in the beginning and who uh, showed me the path to figuring out how to obtain enough knowledge to do something in intelligent about, about the game. That's an amazing connection, isn't it, Stephen? I just, that's amazing that it, if not for wind and this republishing of these classic works of golf, you might not have written your book and wouldn't be writing your second. You know, I didn't even know who, I mean, I knew that Bernard Darwin existed, but I hadn't read very much of his stuff. So, the, you know, the way that the classics worked is they sent you three books a month for however many months you were took you to subscribe to the yeah, entire that's a lot yeah wow. yeah so uh you got this little pack of three books and it was always like you didn't know what they were going to be they mixed it up you know so it was like your surprise packet so one week you might get arnold haltain's book which is a curious little book but just has unbelievably wonderful writing in it uh or you might get you know uh fg tate a record or whatever so when i got playing the like that was like one of the most important arrivals of my life uh and i feel like it really changed the way I thought about golf and the way I thought about golf writing, uh, in particular, the first five essays in there about heroes of old. And uh, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, I came to realize that Darwin's mission in life was to preserve the memories of all the golfers and of the golf he loved, which was mostly pre-war golf. Uh, for him, it was always, you know, Hoylake and the potted shrimps or sandwich before the war with the lark singing or something like that. And... Uh, that was the thing that steered me toward the stories I ended up telling was reading Darwin. And it was funny as I read later an essay by Wind himself in which he said he was not aware of any serious golf writer. And I guess the word serious is the distinction for him 
who hadn't been brought into it by a love of reading Bernard Darwin. And I feel like in a certain way, that was the thing that pushed me over the edge was him leading me to Bernard. Uh, and uh, I've, I've never stopped reading Bernard and rereading him. I think I might have 20 some 20 Bernard Darwin collections on my shelf at the moment, but it's been a joy and it's all, I live, I give a lot of the credit to Herb Wynn. You know, Stephen, it's so funny. You're bringing this up literally on my desk. I don't have my camera on here, but, uh, I, I didn't even think about it. You don't even think about it because you take it for granted. I have a book on my desk that I was just looking at last night, uh, Scotland's Gift, Golf by Charles Blair MacDonald. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe Bradley just brought this up. And it has the CG with the overcrossing clubs, you know, and, and the bottom of the logo. And, you know, this is one of it. It has a, basically a long form essay by Herbert Warren Wynn kicking off the book. One of the most marvelous things that that collection did classics of golf is it really allowed the average guy the average golfer the average reader to obtain knowledge to obtain books without breaking the budget most of these books are very inexpensive i think i bought this for it's a beautiful book bound it's maybe it was 20 dollars or something like that it's the you know all their volumes are gorgeous and they're very well put together and like as you say all very inexpensive I mean, you think about this, it's kind of predates the internet, right? Like people go to the internet to get their knowledge. We didn't have the internet when these came out, these book, beautiful books came out. But like you said, you could subscribe and get three books a month and you'd have all this amazing knowledge from the past at your fingertips. Bradley mentioned this earlier, but I want to re- reiterate it because I think probably one of the most valuable contributions of the Classics of Golf Library and one of Wynn's most valuable contributions as a writer is the forwards he wrote to those books. The forwards themselves are individual works of art yeah. that are, you know, they vary in length. Some of them can be quite long. Some of them are not as long. But they're all abs- – what they just – you know, just showed you the passion and the curiosity that Wynn had about the entire history of the game, everything about it. And, you know, some of those essays, particularly he writes a wonderful essay to in advance of uh, – the Lay of the Land by Pat Ward Thomas, who, uh, who is one of my favorite golf writers, and I know was one of Herb Wynn's favorite golf writers. And it's just an essay about the press corps in the age of Pat Ward Thomas and individual descriptions. Let us meet all the classic writers of this age. And he, then they're all just crazy characters uh, with different ways of approaching things. And it just brings you, you it makes you understand what, it, what a joy it must have been to be tr- among that traveling circus of golf writers at majors uh, at various times. And uh, he does another one in advance of The Dogged Victims of Inexorable Fate, which is a title stolen from Bobby Jones, and I think everybody needs to know that. Uh, and uh, Jenkins does that, Dan Jenkins. And he writes an essay about Dan Jenkins, which is just priceless. Uh, they're all so wonderful. And the book that that, uh, Bradley mentioned earlier, An Introduction to the Literature of Golf, is worth buying just in and of itself because I think of that as some of Wynn's finest writing, those those essays that open the book, the forewords. They remind me a little bit of like – I like to read writers when they're in a more casual and reflective space than their workspace. So like some of the very best things H.L. Mencken did, and I realize he's a controversial writer because he said horrifying things about people – but he was an equal opportunity abuser. In any case, uh, he late in life, he wrote a series of essays for The New Yorker uh, called Newspaper Days and mm. Heathen Days. And those are the nicest, most lovely pieces I believe he've ever written in his life. 
And I feel that same way in certain ways about the forwards because Wind is more relaxed. He can just show off his knowledge of the history of the game and his love for it. And they, they, they just are all beautifully written and wonderfully conceived. And, you know, in those days, uh, after uh, in that period when he was writing the intros, he had no other competitive work. He was basically retired. So he had lots of time to just reflect quietly. Uh, but the level of knowledge that was available at his thumb uh, fingertips was just astonishing. And what's great is, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, you should read this book, that book, and so on. Until this collection, until the uh, the classics came out, the classic series came out, a copy of the of um, George Thomas's Golf Architecture in America. You had to go to a library to find it, and a first edition was was eight hundred dollars, yeah. and now it's available because it was out of uh, it ran out of the copyright for thirty dollars or twenty five. So it made it accessible in a way that was never possible. It's one thing to say, oh, you should read this book, go find it. I, I remember reading the George Thomas book out of the uh, Massachusetts, Northampton, Massachusetts Library when I was, I don't know, 1978 maybe. And I, I was fascinated by it. I fell in love and I was just completely immersed. But to have it available with no loss of graphic representation, also the beauty of those reproductions. You know, you think about Darwin's golf courses of the British Isles and the, uh, the Henry Roundtree watercolors. Oh, they're gorgeous. Uh, those were fabulous. Um, they weren't just reprints. They were, you know, kind of original re reproductions in a way that was very, very uh, well done. So it was a great service to the industry. And uh, it's interesting, you know, you get a sense that there is a very strong affinity among golf writers even today about what they're doing. It's a smaller group. It's a little more compressed in terms of their time horizon. But if you think about, uh, you know, very Golf Week and the Lynx Magazine and then No Laying Up and Fried Egg, uh, their awareness of what they're doing and what other – and Golfer's Journal and Keeler. Um, I think it's McKe McKellar. 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 McKellar, for example. Um, or Lying Four. There's a tremendous sense of collegiality and community among writers even today. But to extend it over time and to have people in a, what I would assume to be a fairly non-competitive relate now it's much more competitive. But in those days, you sat, you had lots of time to file, and um, the conversations that would go on at the Masters, for example, or you know the annual majors, for example, uh, they were all friends. They were traveling together. They were traveling by ship as well, so they had lots of time to talk and to read and to compare notes and so on. So it's a very different culture. Um, the, uh, my absolute favorite quote, and I think it's Darwin, uh, the 51 open championship at Port Rush, Max Faulkner had won and, um, Darwin is scribbling away, trying to meet his deadline, uh, long, long hand. And someone says, you better run. Uh, Faulkner is, uh, doing his press interview and basically Darwin says, uh, my readers are interested in what I have to say, not in what Faulkner has to say. <laughs> I love that, too. That's a, it's a, that's a, Bernard was a, quite the patrician, and uh, he didn't think, you know, it, he thought it was beneath his dignity to uh, bother listening to what a player had to say. Oh, that's so funny. That yeah, so funny. there's another one of those where I think it's the, War I can't even pronounce this, Stephen, you would know, the Warpleston missed. Warpleston, yeah. For, mixed, mixed four ball, foursome, and Darwin himself is one of the finalists 
and he writes an account of the event in which he he says, oh, and there was a fourth person whose name I can't remember. And he's basically, it's the opposite of full disclosure in an article yeah. where he's leaving himself out. Well, he also berates himself a little bit there because I, I, he won that with Joyce Weathered. She was, she's amazing. She won the thing, I think, eight times with seven different partners. But in any case, so you can see who is winning it. Uh, and he was uh, describes her as having won despite, you know, the anvil around her neck uh, in the form of her partner uh, uh, or something to that effect. But he was very self-deprecating about his own game. And as we know from the Bernard Darwin podcast, he, uh, he had temper control issues on the, on the golf course itself. Yeah. Gotta love that. You know, coming back to uh, wind, I uh, I am extremely thankful for the republishing of the Classics of Golf Library, and the reasoning is very selfish. First of all, the cost. But I remember when I was buying the majority of these books, I was having children, and my kids would often come in, you know, like as a two year old, and rip out a page of, of a book, and I can I cannot imagine. Like I've just now started getting like old books, like you know classics that were first editions or second editions. But I mean, literally for 10 years of my life, a decade of my life, everything had to be from that classics collection because I never knew if my son was going to come into my office and pee on a book. (laughs) I just didn't uh, know. So I owe him that for sure. But you know, beyond that, it's odd to think that here we have one of the greatest golf writers of all time. And there is an argument there is an argument, whether it's right or wrong. There's an argument that his greatest gift to golf course literature may, in fact, be the books that he didn't even write. Well, you know, he, he obviously his writing is a pretty giant sized gift to golf. Absolutely. Itself, and I wouldn't want to underestimate that. But I would say there is no person besides Wind who has contributed as much to preserving the larger history of the game as he has. And, you know, we haven't even talked about one other thing that he did, which I know Bradley went into in his delightful profile in the Golfer's Journal. Uh, which is Wind was instrumental in starting Shell's wonderful world of golf, which I still think of as maybe the most fabulous golf show ever put on. I still, as soon as my wife leaves the house and I'm free to do anything I want to do, I write on YouTube getting myself, you know, Hogan versus Eid or something like that. And, uh, you know, he, Bradley, you should talk a little bit about how he, how he, uh, what his role in that was and so forth. Cause I believe he chose the courses and wrote the scripts at the beginning and bunches of other things like that. Yeah. He spent, uh, the, um, I think he was involved for about the first year and a half. There's actually a book about Shell's wonderful world of golf. Al Barcos, uh, written a very nice account. Although Al, uh, downplays Herb's role in that uh, for all sorts of reasons. They didn't get along very well. Um, but, um, Herwin was essentially the producer of the show in the sense that he would work with, uh, first of all, pick the venues, select who he thought would be appropriate players, and then wrote uh, the scripts for the intro and the outro, and then did a little bit of on-air commentary. But he was he was not very good live uh, vocally, so they, they kind of suppressed that. But he wrote uh, essentially the scene setters and the context for the uh, introductions. Uh, for about the first year and a half. And he got that, the terms of that, um, set the tone for the whole series that ran for about six years, I guess it was. It was always my favorite part of golf back then. And I was growing up in, in New York City. I would caddy and then run home and I'd watch Shell's Wonderful World of Golf 
I think it actually was the CBS Golf Classic was on first, and then the Shell's Wonderful World of Golf. This was Saturday afternoon. Uh, it was basically four to four to six o'clock. CBS Golf Classic was um, Saturday afternoon at four, and then Shell's Wonderful World of Golf was five o'clock on a Saturday. It was the best two hours of the week for a teenager to to see the world. And uh, Herb's um, sensibility really informed that. Um, and they traveled all over the world. You know, they were going to Cairo and Thailand and uh, Buenos Aires, places that no one would ha- ever have taken to production. And it was a a technical, com- I want to say nightmare. It was extremely complex. You'd have a match down in um, uh, Buenos Aires. Uh, I forgot the name of the uh, the McKenzie course uh, down there. The uh, jockey club there? The jockey club, yeah. It would take them four or five hours to play nine holes because they only had two or three cameras and they had to move them around on the back of a, uh, an automobile. So the rooftop, you had to take the camera down, put the tripod up, move it, reposition it. But they had these little drawings and these, and it was so great to watch them play a 400 yard hole where they're hitting four iron into the green or these bumpy little scruffy golf courses and inside a, a racetrack in Thailand, for example. So uh, it was a fantastic ex of the world of golf and that alone this is the other thing i think we don't give enough credit to um but her win did more to convey a sense of the international equity of golf he was equally serious about the australian open the world cup uh international amateur play uh, he took it more seriously than any other writer and the just the travel and the logistics of that alone uh, which was the thing that really animated the, the shell's wonderful world of golf i think was a tremendous service nobody did more to help convey a sense of the global nature of the game speaking of which he also was very instrumental in or at least wrote one of the essays in the world atlas of golf which is one of the foundational books for people who enjoy golf architecture and i had the pleasure of doing a book club with Derek duncan and adrian Logue on that book and it was just striking to me how those two who are you know very prominent figures in the world of golf architecture now, at least in terms of discussion and, and influence. Uh, they were they thought, thought of that book as one of the foundational books of their life. 100%. And uh, wherever you go, that's what's so interesting to me. There it is. Wherever you go uh, to find something about golf, you find Herbert Warren win there. And I just think that says an awful lot about him as i guess i would say he was the first and most ultimate influencer as we like to call them now in the world of golf because uh if if it was big herbert warren Wynn was probably involved in it in some seriously intellectual way for almost all the years of his career and uh so i i consider him my personal golf history concierge uh who has taken me down the history pathways and uh when i think of him i think of one word erudition you know, he is his stuff is erudite in a way almost no other golf writer's work is. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Stephen. You say it like that. I look back at you know the golf classics library and how it was essentially like our internet. Like I mentioned, this is pre-internet. This is how we got our knowledge, and yet now we're using the internet to watch Shell's wonderful w- world of golf. You know, so we're rediscovering something that he touched early that has affected us all. Now you can watch it anytime you like via YouTube. And it's amazing that it's bringing all that back to life. It's just, it's nice that there are so many resources available now that you can, you know, sit in your home here in Malabar, Florida, and do research in the archives of British newspapers. 
that you would ordinarily have had to spend gobs of money to go travel and do. So, yes, it is a much easier world for somebody trying to write about something, especially if you're always trying to write about British golf and you always live in Florida. (laughs) Stephen, what are you working on now? Working on a book about the history, what I would say, of the period of golf when the game comes of age. So the book starts in 1890 with John Ball Mm -hmm. uh, winning both the Open and the Amateur and moves forward from there to the war. Just wants to tell the story of golf's most glorious age, where literally almost everything that you think of as modern golf happens between 1890 and 1914, including you know the introduction of new balls, sure. revolutionary changes in equipment, the organization of the game and its rules. Just about everything that shapes the future of the game occurs in that one generation. And so the book is just about, it's a story like the Tommy book, uh, about how that unfolds and i hope you know you write it and you hope someone will take it that's why i always just do it and then uh i hope someone will take it when it gets done yep great is it do you feel um what's the word uh, any difficulty with the research online i mean it's certainly a um significant capacity is it fully um transparent in terms of what's accessible to you I haven't had any trouble finding well anything that I wanted thus far uh, in the, in British papers. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's a limited number of them available on certain services, yeah. uh, but I'm able to get everything from the Times and everything from the Guardian, and those are, you know, pretty solid sources there. A lot of what you know, I like to work with memoirs in particular of people who were there because you can it helps you in the writing because you have some sense of what they were thinking and doing themselves at the moment, actors. And except for John Ball, every single person in that age of consequence wrote a memoir. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, you know, obviously their memories are often faulty and they need to be checked against facts and so forth and so on like that. But they're, it's a great source of, of being able to – I like to tell it as a story. I think that's the one thing that I feel like I can do, do for history of golf. I'm not a foundational historian. I don't go discover new things per se. Uh, but I can uh, tell a story – about what other people have discovered and, you know, bring it to life in a way that maybe an academic writer isn't as well trained to do. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's a bit of strange time. Um, I, I'm used to traveling 150 days a year, maybe. I, I did it for 25 years. This last year, it's now uh, 11 months. Um, I haven't flown an airplane. Um, I've only been away from my house two nights Really, for quick drives, and everything I've been doing is on internet, Google Earth. I can do uh, topographic maps, analyses of golf courses, elevation changes, uh, get perspectives. It's, it's amazing, the resources. I still need to be out there, though. I still need to kind of feel the air and to look to the side, and so I miss that component of it. But uh, it's actually been an incredible, for me, an incredibly productive period in terms of uh, – a lot of writing for the USJ Golf Journal and specific articles and profiles. It's been great. Um, it's also been nice being home. It's amazing how much you can get done when you're home rather than traveling. So I'm looking forward to getting out a little bit. But it's been a great period for discovering and, and, and spending time reading. And um, that's been precious. So um, good luck with your that project. Sounds interesting. It's, Thank um, you, Bradley. An important period of the, go- of the golf industry. Bradley, you mentioned that you met Herbert Warren Wind 
I was wondering if you could give us an impression of the man. Not many people have met him. Unfortunately, he passed uh, 2005. He's been gone for 16 years. What can you tell us about the man, Herbert Warren Wynn? What was he like to be around? Did he have an aura, if you will, of uh, you know one of the greatest writers of all time? Did, was there an intimidation factor with that? Yeah. Well, I can tell you this. Now, I didn't meet him until 1979, so he would have been 63 years old. And then I knew him pretty regularly. Uh, we spent time together. I met him in New York. We had drinks. Uh, we would talk quite a bit. I never played golf with him. I never went to his office. Um, but I would meet him and talk with him and conversed. And he wrote uh, letters for me of introduction when I was traveling. So the first thing I'll tell you is that he was always older than he, he acted older than he was <laughs> <laughs> at 63 uh, even. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, th- and th- there's this classic look he had where he was wearing way too many clothes all the time. So he would come out, um, the, um, he'd be wearing wool pants, three piece suit. He'd have a raincoat with him, a heavy hat, um, an umbrella, and somehow managed to take notes with all this weight being weighted down. I can tell you this, the best time I ever had with him, I caddy, I used to caddy on the PJ tour. And um, so I had set up a, a meeting with him uh, for Pebble Beach in 1982. I was caddying for Bernhard Langer back then, briefly, and uh, missed the cut. So I had Saturday and Sunday open. So I uh, Sunday we walked the course, and I spent the entire Sunday – of the final round of the 82 open with Herb and we walked and I watched him take his notes and sit there and just, he had a little very specific way of almost a hieroglyphic account of being able to tell who at what time was doing what. So one of the things he tried to do in his note taking, as I could tell is he would try to figure out the ethos and the mood and the emotion at the moment. So if somebody birdied 14 as an example, that was the day uh, Nicholas went out and made five birdies in a row early on. I think he birdied something like three through seven. And it changed everything. We ran over to watch Nicholas, and then Watson was about two holes behind him, I guess. So he could keep track of the, the feeling out there. We got to, and then we, and then we decided to drop back and follow Watson in from about 413. And we were standing there, right there on the 17th green, in front of the bunker. We were left front of the bunker on 17 when Watson chipped in. And I, Herb just dropped everything, and his hands went up. And it was an absolutely spontaneous uh, expression of joy. And he knew that he had seen something historic, and it was a fantastic feeling to share that moment, watching him actually be a fan of the game. Um, it was a great afternoon. Um, I, I feel very blessed to have spent that moment, been there with at that moment. Uh, but he was generally very buttoned down, very fussy, very formal. If I was going to meet him, it would be at a certain time, at a certain place. And he'd always be two, three minutes late. And um, that sort of, uh, yeah, it, it, he wasn't intimidating. He just was in charge uh, in, in a modest way. I've been with certain athletes, for example, who they totally dominate. He didn't dominate. He just made it clear that he had a certain way of doing things, and that's how we're going to do it. Um, so, but he was very generous and gracious and he would send books every once in a while and he would sign them and, uh, he encouraged me a lot to stay in academia. He thought it was more important. He, um, and whatever I was trying to do, he was encouraging. 
So uh, in that sense, he was very gracious. And I think he spent one of the things I found when I uh, went through his papers. Um, lo and behold, it was heartbreaking to discover I was not the only writer that he had encouraged. In fact, there were hundreds of these. And I, it was funny to find letters from Mike Bamberger and Lauren Rubenstein and an earlier generation as well who were writing him about advice and how to break through and his ideas. And he spent a lot of time in those days, you know, people corresponded just like we get up and do email for two hours. No, they wrote long letters. And um, it was very interesting to discover how much of a inspiration he was literally practically to other writers as well. Um, so I, I feel uh, very blessed to have been part of that big tradition, big tent tradition. Yeah. So Bradley, when you, when you got to watch that moment with Tom Watson, tell me how you felt when you read his description of it later. Um, that's a good what did you think of the way he dealt with that moment, having seen it? I'd have to go back. I, that's a great question. I don't know if I've ever thought of that. Um, I'll have to go back and look at it. Yeah. Okay. Just okay. curious because to have seen it and then to see how he described it would be kind of instructive just from a writing standpoint. You saw the action yourself and then you see what he makes of it. Right. Because it obviously is one of the big moments in the history of the game, not just that particular event. That's one of the great shots ever. So I just was curious to know if you if you were struck at any way by the way he wrote about it later. Well, it's funny that you mention it now. Generally, what I recall is that his account was flatter and more consistent rather than with the kind of emotional complexity and um, momentary jubilation. And he certainly conveyed none of his own in that. I'll have to go back and look at it. It's a great question. Very interesting. Bradley, you mentioned this prior that you had thought about writing a book. This is prior to recording. Maybe, yeah. yeah, go into it. I mean, why why not write a book? It seems like you have this depth of knowledge uh, of the study and the man, knowing the man behind the work. What, what are the complexities with writing a book on Herbert Warren Wind? Selling it. That's it. To a publisher. Uh, you know, I've written 11 books. They're easy to write. Yeah. They're hard to get. Um, that's the hard part because you don't control it. So I've, I've run the idea. I, I, I ran this idea 10 years ago, past agents, and they just kind of yawned. But um, now that I've done the research twice and written that one piece, and, and by the way, as long as that piece was in Golfer's Journal, uh, even the editors left 1,500 words on the floor. <laughs> but, um, and it, uh, I'm glad they did. It reads better. But um, I always thought of writing about a 120-page book called The Last Sports Writer. Oh, and, beautiful um, title. That's what I'd call it, and uh, the, and um, I could do it actually. Uh, and, and and the beauty of it is, I didn't have this the first time around. I probably should do it, um, but I'm a freelancer right now. I'm on my own, so I, I, I there's a mercenary component here, and I have a lot of work. So I'm always thinking, ah, there's a lot of things I'd like to do, but um, the Herb Wind piece, there's a sadness to his life and an emptiness that I discovered that I could convey in a way that I think would um, be very powerful. I, there's a little bit of that that I conveyed in the Golfer's Journal piece. But I found his former girlfriend. Uh, I found his barber. And I found people who knew him. And uh, they all conveyed a sense of sadness to his life. And I'd love to be able to convey that in conjunction with his ability to make sports come alive. Because that's how he lived through <clears throat> You know, Bradley, I would just do it. You know, when I first started the Tommy book, first off, no one had ever heard of me. I mean, I had a, you know, a good career in journalism and everything, but no one had ever heard of me. I figured I doubted if it would get accepted by a publisher. And I 
decided that if I did get it accepted, I would just publish it. What the heck? And lose however much money was involved in doing that. Uh, but, uh, you know, you never know. It's sometimes like I, the first agent I met with about the Tommy book told me, well, his life isn't long enough for a book. So you're wasting your time on that. And uh, <clears throat> and so when I started writing the Tommy book, you know, I had no expectation that it would get published. I, I simply wanted to write it, kept right on doing it. And I just feel when you have it all written out, people can see the vision that you have probably in a way they don't capture when you're just explaining to them what you want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I'm a person who's prepared to gamble on the finished product. Uh, but then again, you know, I don't have the same situation that Bradley has where I have competing freelance offers and, you know, I'm just, I'm a retired person having fun with golf history. So there's a difference. That's for sure. Well, I'm also 66, so I'm semi-retired in a way. So at least like to lately. Yeah. Bradley, I'm going to make you a pitch on why you have to do it. Because nobody yeah. else that I know of stalks their subjects like you do. Like you went to the docks where Donald Ross got off the boat. You met the barber of Herbert Warren Wind. Like nobody goes to that level. You've got to write the book. We'll find you a publisher. All writers do that. That's the beauty of it. Uh, Stephen yes. knows what it's like. Yes, Bradley's a real journalist. He might have been an academic, but he's a real journalist. I and got off the docks and I walked to uh, uh, Robert Wilson's house in Cambridge. Yeah. and measured it. You found Herbert Warren Wynn's barber. Come on, I mean, like, who does that? No one's talking to the barber. No one's talking to the barber, Bradley. Only journalists. It's brilliant. I think you have That's to write. What it. You do. I mean, People don't understand, I think, about research where you have to feel and sense and go to, uh, to, be, uh, to reproduce as authentically as possible some version of an experience that they had. And, uh, you know, for me, it was uh, spending time with Donald Ross's daughter, for example. I found someone who had caddied for him um, just to talk to them, to be there, to have a connection, to say, I've just now made a link back to someone who was born in 1872. It's um, it gives you a feel of authenticity and um, gives you confidence that you wouldn't otherwise have. That was, I would say, one of the biggest challenges of the Tommy book is there was no one to speak to. I mean, I did go and visit like his school where at Air Academy, and I saw the cottage that he grew up in there in Presswick, and also the the one that he um, that he that he lived in in St Andrews during the uh, years after he was thirteen and. You know, I got to eventually see uh, the room, uh, the house, uh, old Tom's house there on the 18th. But, you know, there wasn't it was very difficult in a certain way to capture him as well as you would like to do, because the only thing you had were a few memories written down by people by, like Andrew Kirkcaldy or Bob Ferguson or stuff of that nature. And you couldn't talk to them. You could physically see all the haunts where he was. Mm -hmm. uh, and you do get a feeling from that of, of something of his experience. But it's not the same as being able to talk to his barber or his caddy. That's a great point. Well, let's finish up here. I, we, we've got a, an amazing podcast here. I, Herbert Warren Wynn passed away in 2005. I think, Bradley, this alludes to uh, the last sports writer comment that you made. Can we ever feel the void that he left behind? Like, will there ever be another Herbert Warren Wynn? Uh, well, no, not in long form. But what you can have, I have to say, there are outlets for 
um, I'll give you, I'm going to jump here all over the place. I'm, I'm very impressed with the outpouring of affection for the late Pedro Gomez, the ESPN baseball writer. Uh, and it's same thing for Tim Kirkchen. There are people who immerse themselves, invest themselves emotionally, completely. You know, Pedro Gomez spent three years traveling with Barry Bonds and the San Francisco Giants. I can't imagine anything more repulsive than having to do that. But it gave him an authenticity and an access and a relationship. So I think what you do is you you find the technology and, and there are outlets for that 30, 30 series, 30 for 30 series. And ESPN does some of that. Some of the reporting uh, of people who are really there the whole time, who are not fanboys. That's the difference. You have to have a certain distance and you have to have your identity and a confidence. So that's where reporting really can be very powerful. Um, the difficulty nowadays is the players. The players don't give you the access. They're all guarded. They're all protected by walls and layers of the caddies won't talk. They're arrogant people. Uh, they have agents. You have to set up a meeting. They have to have the questions, all that stuff. So you don't get any access to them as real people. That's, to me, the biggest difficulty. That's why I like spending time with architects and, and uh, superintendents because they're completely unguarded. And uh, they're out there. 12 hours a day on a bulldozer or with a sketch pad and you have time to kind of hang out with them. So that, to me, that's more accessible. So on the architecture side, I think uh, on the maintenance side, I think it's easier on the player side, much more difficult. Is long form you know, writing dead in golf? Is there ever going to be an outlet that would allow a writer to expound upon his thoughts quite like Herbert Warren wind? I don't see that happening anytime soon. You know, uh, there, there are still places that are doing wonderful things, like Golfer's Journal, McKellar Magazine that that uh, Bradley mentioned earlier. There are still wonderful writers who uh, in golf. Michael Bamberger, I think of as one of the best uh, writers ever on golf, uh, and you know, there, I'm sure there are there are many others too who deserve to be mentioned. There's a lot of wonderful writing going on about golf, uh, but like all journalism and all communication now, everything is evolving and changing, and I do think that long form is not something that fits in with the current attention span of of modern readers there are not many people who are long form readers now so i um i do think that we may have seen the last of the of the long form writing but you know t everything swings on pendulums and it may be a day in the future when people get tired of tidbit news and want to go back to something more substantive uh and you know even some of the like bradley's piece in 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 uh, the golfer's journal about wind it's his, it, himself it's 3800 words but that's a very long form piece in the modern yeah, age that's true. and uh so it's just i, I don't think we'll see 10,000 word pieces like winds come back but i do think there's still a lot of really wonderful uh substantive work being done about golf and i think there'll always be great writing about golf because the golfers and readers intersect in a way that isn't true in a lot of other sports. You know, if you are a, a football fan or whatever, m there are not as many readers in that group, I think, as there are in the golf group. And I think for that reason alone, golf will always have a pretty strong literature in whatever evolutionary form literature takes as the ages go on. As long as there are readers, you know, it's interesting in, in political journalism, there's been a big revival of detailed long essays in The New Yorker. The Atlantic has done a fabulous job. Uh, people take time. And actually, this is the, one of the ironies. It's actually 
more success with long form on an internet format because you don't realize how long it is. And you just once you get engaged, you start you lose yourself in it, uh, and you can close it up. You can take a break or whatever. So uh, the, all the uh, publications online are finding out that there is a space for that. It's not a major space, but there's a niche for it. So, um, you know, uh, ESPN tried it. I forgot the uh, format that they had um, online for a while. They they closed it off after a while. But um, you're not going to see a big company undertake it. Certainly not one run by Disney. But you will see um, smaller formats available here and there. Um I'm thinking of lying for McKellar, um, a few others, yeah, and and Golfer's Journal. Uh, but most editors are nervous, and um, they underestimate their readers. I'm convinced of that. There's no doubt of that, Bradley. That was one of my strongest feelings. I was a newspaper editor for uh, 35 years, and I always felt like the biggest problems newspapers made was that they didn't understand that the people who got newspapers were readers. And wanted things to read. That's why they bought the paper. And uh, I think if they had stuck a little more closely to their own niche instead of trying to worry about the niche someone else is occupying next door to them, uh, they might have might have done better. But perhaps that's just nostalgia of an old journalist, too. Well, let, let's end with kind of parting thoughts. Your final thoughts on this podcast on Herbert Warren Wind. I'll start with you, Stephen Proctor. Um, if you want to go with what people should take from his career, or let's say there's tens of thousands of listeners listening to our show today, you know, how should they best discover the works of Herbert Warren and Wind? I think Herbert Warren Wind and Bernard Darwin, to me, are the twin towers of golf writing. And that's the way it needs to be viewed. Bernard as the great essayist and Herbert Warren Wind as the erudite explorer of all the niches in the history of the game. And so I think uh, Herbert Warren Wind ranks right up there with Bernard in terms of his importance to the history of the game, not simply as a writer, but as a preserver of the great works of the game. He exceeds even Bernard in that regard. I do not think Bernard would be nearly as well read today as he is had it not been for Herbert Warren Wind. And I think that also holds true of writers like Pat Ward Thomas Al Laney, and other people whose memory he helped to keep alive with the Classics of Golf Library and through his own forewords and essays about their work. So I think Wind has to be remembered not only as one of the best writers ever to take up writing about golf, uh, but also as one of the largest contributors to preserving the great history of the game. Bradley? I like that. All I'm going to tell you is I'm, I think I'm going to go ahead and write this book. Uh, Love inspired. it. So, um, and I would just encourage everybody to go out and find a Herb Wind book and read it. I think Stephen said it perfectly. Yeah, Bradley. Yeah. Well, let me go with this with you then. So we have a lot of folks listening to the show. A lot of them, and, and they buy books, right? I, Stephen can attest to that. If you're going to give advice on where to start with Herbert Warren Wind, and I know that's a tough order, what books should they really take a look at to start off their collection of writing of uh, the writings of Herbert Warren Wind? Um, I would say two of them. If you're into design or architecture, the World Atlas of Golf. Uh, but the first or second edition, not the the most recent, the, the one with the green cover. 
And then uh, I'd have to say following through. Following through is just a fabulous uh, sweep collection um, of the sort of the, it really focuses on the uh, 60s and 70s. And it's, um, it, so it's within recent memory of the, in terms of the players for most people. I would start there. Steven? I agree with that on following through. I also highly recommend that people read his The Story of American Golf. Yeah. Yeah. That is essentially however many chapters. Each one of those chapters is essentially a New Yorker essay about that period of golf. It's not written in the way that a traditional history book is written, although it's every bit as well-researched and as comprehensive as any history of American golf. And it is the standout history of American golf, in my mind, by, by a long shot. And so I think that's, that's critically important. And I would recommend that you get one of his compilations, like The Complete Golfer, so that you can see that Herbert Warren Wynn can help to guide you to some of the great pieces of golf writing, memoirs, essays that existed in all the years leading up to him. So those would be my recommendations. Following through, just to read the beautiful writing of Wind, the story of American golf, to see his big giant contribution to golf history, and the complete golfer from Classics of Golf, to see the great way in which Wind helps to preserve works across so many ages and eras and uh, and you know wonderful writers that you would otherwise never come across probably unless you were a researcher absolutely well gentlemen thank you so much for joining the show it's been a delight thank you so much it was wonderful connor i really appreciated being here and i really really relished the chance to get to talk with bradley you should do this more often, if uh, not on a podcast, then offline. The fact, by the way, I have to say, podcasts themselves are reflective of the fact that people have time to devote to their passions, um, even if it's on uh, a treadmill. So um, the fact that it's amazing that people sit for an hour and listen to this stuff all the time. All the and time. It is crazy. And, and it's not even... It's not even time-based. It's so strange. So, you know, if you look at even the history of this podcast, we have people who have listened to all 60 shows and then go back and listen to one that's from year one. I just, I'm shocked by it that that's the beauty of the podcast. Probably like reading a book because you can always pick up your, you know, the old book on the shelf and read it again. And I'm seeing the same thing with the podcast is thousands of people are listening to shows that we did three years ago because they're discovering the podcast. Uh, whether you're jogging, you're sitting in a chair or a lot of times, Bradley, and this is what I was worried about, that we'd see a decline because I figured a lot of people were listening to the show in their car in their daily commute to work. And so during this pandemic, I assumed that the numbers would just fall through because nobody's in their car. Nobody's driving to work. They're just staying at home doing work and they're not going to have time to listen to a podcast. And in fact, they found that time. So a special thanks to all those listeners out there that aren't driving to work, but still take the time. It's amazing to me. Yes, it is a wonderful thing that you're doing, Connor, for golf history and uh, just for us golfers. Well, listen, I can't do what you two do. I cannot walk in those steps. I cannot stalk the barber of Herbert Warren Wind. God bless. And, but I, the thing is, I love the fact that you do it. I mean, that's what really energizes me about this podcast and talking to folks and eventually putting this to film is those people who take it to another level. Like I, I just, I'm not, I'm too ADD to write a book. I've said this a thousand times. I'm really good for a quote and you know, beyond that, good luck. But what you guys do amazes me 
uh, both of your books. I have them both um, on my desk. The Donald Ross book and Bradley, I've got a couple of yours. And The Monarch of the Green. And they are literally an inspiration to those folks who love history, but can't imagine the time and effort and the research and compiling all that information into something that someone can read that's beautifully written. So thank you so much for that, both of you. I think you've, your contributions to my knowledge and the knowledge of our listeners has been fantastic. Well, thanks. Thank you, Connor. Few stories we will ever tell of golfers on the show will have the profound impact on the game of golf as that of Herbert Warren Wind. Stephen Proctor told me that without Herbert Warren Wind and more specifically, the historic book collection reprinted by the classics of golf, that he wouldn't have been able to gain the knowledge necessary to learn about the history of our game. When I thought about that statement, I too realized that my early book collection mimicked that of Stevens. All of my early books were part of the classics of golf collection. How much Herbert Warren Wind must have loved the game to give us this priceless gift. If not for this contribution, we would likely not know Stephen Proctor. We might not have his wonderful book, Monarch of the Green. And as for me, it's entirely possible that this podcast wouldn't exist nor the Society of Golf Historians. Both Stephen and I, as well as countless others, are the disciples of Herbert Warren Wynn's gift to the game of golf. In our next couple of shows, we will explore one of Herbert Warren Wynn's favorite subjects, the Masters. Until then, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.